0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 5.3, balance and shalom. Welcome back again. Well, we're getting very close to the end of this series now, and there is still one issue that I think needs to be addressed, and that is the diversity of the Old Testament. What I mean by that is that the Old Testament's been put together by a vast range of authors over hundreds of years, and not every book speaks the same message or gives the exact same impression of God's character. Now, we saw this already when we looked at Job. Do you remember a few podcasts ago, uh, I mentioned that I began with a certain understanding of God and that Job begins with a certain understanding of God that's kind of transactional. And I tried to point out there that his wife, his friends, his community... They all stubbornly hold that same perception of God, which makes it very tough for Job to mature beyond it. But we're aware that there are verses in the Bible that say people get what they deserve, choose this and you'll be blessed, choose that and you'll be cursed. But there are also stories like Job or books like Ecclesiastes. Um, And some of those texts have a different message. They're sort of pushing back against the status quo and saying, "Mm, it's not that simple. So as as you may have noticed uh, in your own reading of the Bible, this theology of reward and punishment, it's there. It's right here in our Bibles. And, And Job's routine of offering sacrifices is consistent with a biblical principle, probably set out most clearly in Deuteronomy, where the blessings and curses are promised as consequences for obedience or disobedience. Now, the context in Deuteronomy was this. As the Israelites uh, prepare to enter the promised land, Moses spends an entire day instructing them about how they should behave in order to establish God's kingdom in that land. And as well as reminding Israel of their special role in God's purposes, and as well as underlining the importance of those laws, Moses recites to them, at the end of it, a long list of blessings and curses, that is, of positive and negative consequences that will correspond to their behavior. Let me read you just a couple of verses. This is from Deuteronomy 11, 26 to 28. Moses says, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord that I'm commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God but turned from the way that I'm commanding you today. So you see, this this idea of being blessed for obedience and cursed for disobedience, it is a biblical principle, and it's one that we find in other places too, like the wisdom literature and the prophets. You might remember when we looked at Jeremiah 18 and 19 in podcast 4.1, what we saw there was that God explicitly states that his responses to us depend on our responses to him. But that doesn't help us when we come to Job, because the whole purpose of the book of Job appeared to be that the rule of blessings and curses from Deuteronomy, it doesn't work. Like for Job, it's just not working. The whole thing seems to be turned on its head. He's a good guy, and he's getting all the curses. So what's going on? And what are we to make of the fact that the Old Testament contains different voices that on one level might appear to contradict each other, or at least to stand in tension with each other? Well, I'll tell you what's not helpful. It's not helpful to try and smooth over all the differences by forcing Old Testament texts to all say the same thing. That approach just won't work. And what you end up with is some really weird readings of important texts like Job. Or, as is often the case, people just stop reading those parts of the Bible altogether and you won't hear them preach much because people aren't sure quite what to do with them. Walter Brueggemann, who I've mentioned earlier, he's developed a really good image for what's going on here, a good metaphor. And what I want to do is work with that. So let me explain that to you. It's a way of thinking about all the voices in the Old Testament. Think of it this way. Picture an enormous courtroom bustling with hundreds of biblical characters. So, you know, Abraham and Moses, Ruth, Esther, Daniel, they're all there, along with many others from the New Testament as well including Mary, John, Paul, and so on. Now, all of these witnesses have been summoned to this court to give testimony about the character of God. So as the room falls silent, witnesses are called upon one by one to testify concerning the God of Israel and the God of the church. As time passes, the majority of witnesses in the courtroom, they offer their testimonies and they corroborate God's fair And reliable governance of the world. We could refer to the witness of most of these people as the Bible's core testimony about God. You know, God is good. God is faithful. God is fair. God is powerful and so on. But once that core testimony has been established, there's still a small group of witnesses who haven't spoken yet. They're all standing in the the corner murmuring. And by way of counter-testimony, they initiate a process of cross-examination where Israel and the church's core testimony about Yahweh's justice is tested for its coherence and its credibility, you know, to make sure that it's it's fair and right and true. Now, those secondary witnesses include things like uh, the Psalms of Lament, which is a third of the Psalms, so it's not a small voice, the confession, Confessions of Jeremiah, Uh, He was a particularly unhappy prophet at times. Uh, You've got the jaded preacher in Ecclesiastes. Everything's meaningless. You've got the book of Lamentations, which is obviously lament. And then last but certainly not least, we have Job, who we've already looked at a little bit. So when all is said and done, the core testimony of Israel and the church affirms God's justice, and that remains the dominant voice in this imagined legal context. But those witnesses whose doubts and protests form a counter-testimony can't be overlooked. We have to listen to those other voices as well. And this is what Brueggemann says. He says, what is at issue is the endlessly tricky relation between the great tradition, capital G, capital T, the great tradition that is the core testimony of the Bible, and the little texts, as he calls it, all these other texts that are, are sort of cross-examining that core testimony. Now, one of the great strengths of this legal metaphor that I like is that it, it emphasizes that each voice or book of the Bible gives witness to God and to his character, whether you consider it the great tradition or a little text, and everything gets a proper hearing. And let's be honest, the biblical witnesses are, are an accurate reflection of our life experience, aren't they? Not everyone has the same experience of God. Everyone has those moments where you want to ask, "Uh, God, um, are you still there? Are you still there in the way that you were maybe five or ten years ago? And what we find in these 39 Old Testament books is a collection of literature that actually reflects reality. Because there are times in our lives where we feel like Job. And more than that, the Old Testament holds together this range of diverse viewpoints about life. And that is what's important, that the Old Testament holds the diverse viewpoints together, right? There didn't come a point where someone just went through and said, let's get rid of all the stuff that sounds like counter-testimony because it needs to all say the same thing. Sometimes we want to just keep reading the stuff that reinforces how we already feel or what we already believe. Why? Because it's safe, isn't it? We read the things that reinforce what we believe because we think we already know what's best. But how are you going to make new discoveries if you never venture beyond that? I always encourage my students in classes when they're wondering what to read or what book to review or whatever, to read stuff that they disagree with at least once they've got a sense of the center. It sharpens what you know, and sometimes it introduces you to a a brand new perspective or a framework that is really eye-opening. Yeah, I I like the way Stephen Chapman at Duke University puts this. He says, life emerges from the multiplicity of voices contained within the canon. That's the books of the Old Testament he's talking about. For only in the chorus of these voices Are we able to learn to hear a voice other than our own? Difference within the canon is necessary if readers are to entertain other possible selves. There's a lot in that quote. But you see, what he's getting at is if you don't listen to new voices or different voices, you're less likely to grow because you're just finding ways to reinforce what you already think. Job's friends are a great example of this, aren't they? They hear Job's words, but they're not really listening. They're narrow-minded enough to think that they have the answers before they even hear the questions, and it makes them lousy friends and poor theologians, because God is reduced to a couple of formulas, and they can't seem to hear anything else. Another way to illustrate this is by looking at the way proverbs work. Everyone likes a good proverb, right? Complete these ones for me. Two wrongs don't make a right. If you can't beat them, that's right, join them. All good things, yes, they must come to an end. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And speaking of eggs, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, that's right. The grass is always greener on the other side, yes, and so on. Now, these are all fine, as modern proverbs go, but the question is, what happens when one proverb contradicts another? Because each one is trying to say so much. For example, do too many cooks spoil the broth? Or do many hands make light work? You see, a person who's working in the kitchen uh, and needs some help will say, "Uh, many hands make light work here, guys, and call people into the kitchen. When you're trying to cook and there are people all around you and everyone's got a voice in you know, what sauces or spices you should put into your meal, you might say, um, too many cooks spoil the broth because you want them to get out of the kitchen. The point is there are different ways that you can use proverbs to inform life and living depending on what you need. The proverb that you call out in the kitchen will depend on whether you feel alone and you want some help or Whether too many opinions are cramping your style. Is it better to be safe than sorry? Or do you say nothing ventured, nothing gained? Again, you're gonna cite the proverb that applies to your particular situation. Do good things come in small packages, as you say, when you receive a tiny, tiny, tiny gift? (laughs) Or is it the bigger the better? These examples are kind of trivial, I know, but they make the point that a one-size-fits-all statement cannot cover all the bases. So even with these proverbs, what we discover is that we need a more sophisticated worldview. And suddenly we find that we're back to wisdom. We're back to balance. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that the Old Testament is diverse. Of course it is. But that's something to be celebrated, not something to be denied, not something to try and cover up. I grew up in an environment that tried to assure me all the time that the Bible is simple, straightforward, black and white, and easy. That wasn't necessarily said out loud, but certain questions just weren't asked. If you thought it was weird that certain Psalms and Proverbs say that the righteous prosper and the wicked perish, even while Job next door is crying out to God saying, that isn't working for me, I've been good and I'm suffering you just knew not to ask those questions. It was sort of a subtle part of the church culture. Everyone sort of suspected that the Bible has some tricky bits in it, but you just, you know, you learn not to linger there. And that was helpful for a time, perhaps, while I got a basic sense of what the Bible teaches and while I developed a moral compass. But at some point, we all want to ask our tough questions and we need to. We need permission to say, hey, My belief system and my experiences are not adding up, and I need someone to talk to me about this. And so you should. Don't give up. Don't ignore those questions. Those are two easy options that will get you nowhere. Don't give up, and don't ignore the questions. People who give up miss out, and people who ignore the questions only find that those questions pop up again later on, unexpectedly. So yes, the Old Testament contains diversity, of course it does. It was written by tons of different people over centuries of time, different places, different personalities, and you don't need to be afraid of that. I like the way Rachel Held Evans puts it. She's written a recent book called Inspired, and she recounts a conversation with Pete Enns, who's also written some really helpful stuff on how to approach and understand the Bible. And Pete asked her, What if the Bible is just fine the way it is? What if the Bible's just fine the way it is? And Rachel found that question liberating because it enabled her to accept the messy, troubling, and weird portions of Scripture and to read them afresh. What if the Bible is just fine the way it is? Now, it might sound like a strange question to you, whether we're aware of it or not, we do spend quite a lot of time and energy trying to ensure that the Bible says what we wished it said. Do you know what I mean by that? We try to make it static. We try to make it certain and absolute, but it's not. It's alive and it regularly surprises us. We don't like that because we'd rather control it, right? Like Job's friends again, We'd like to be able to say with utter certainty, this is what the Bible means to say. But don't forget what God had to say about those guys. He wasn't particularly happy with their speech, with their words, was he? Because they boxed God up, or at least they tried to. So for any of us who think we've worked out who God is and how he operates, we just need to read those last few chapters of Job, where God says to Job and his friends, you haven't got the first clue who I am, or how I operate. Not a clue. Were you there when I built the earth? Were you there when I set boundaries for the sea? When I commanded the sun and the rain and the snow? Do you know how to control the seasons? And so it goes. And those questions, they sound ridiculous. And they are ridiculous questions, aren't they? And the point, of course, of all that is that it is ridiculous for us to think that we can take God or his word and just smooth it all over. Harmonize it into something manageable. No, we can't. And we should stop trying. There is so much to discover in the pages of the Old Testament. And there is wisdom in listening to the whole chorus of voices. So as we finish, have a think on this question. What parts of the Old Testament do you avoid reading and why? What parts of the Old Testament do you avoid reading and why? See ya. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.